After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who is, excuse me, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive the glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them them a kingdom and the priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them 
saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chris. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Chris just read, which is the very word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you that you have not left us alone to make sense out of life on our own, but that you've spoken to us uh, in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to behold you this morning in your beauty, in your glory, in your splendor, in your might, and that that view would transform our hearts, that we might leave this room different than we arrived more like you. Lord, use us, change us, and be pleased. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, you might be wondering, why in the world are you reading from the book of Revelation during Advent? Aren't we supposed to be talking about the baby Jesus, right? Aren't we supposed to be talking about the shepherds or the kings or Mary and Joseph? Well, as I mentioned last week to folks who were here last week, historically speaking, Advent wasn't about the first coming of Jesus. It wasn't about the baby Jesus. It wasn't about the incarnation. The church thought of the advent as the second coming of Jesus. This, this Christ who comes in the clouds, this Christ who comes to judge the living and the dead, this Christ who comes to make all things new. That's what the church thought about. That's what the, the church reveled in. Now, why in the world is that the case? Well, it's because the earliest Christians were literally painfully aware of the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. When the New Testament church was born, uh, it was considered by many to be a part of, uh, by, by many to be a Jewish sect. Um, it was born in Jerusalem. It was made up first by Jewish believers, believers who had been raised Jewish. Uh, Israel was occupied territory. It was occupied by the Romans. And while other conquered peoples were Hellenized, meaning in part that they had to worship the Roman gods like Jupiter and Diana and Neptune. Because the Israelites were monotheists, they worshiped God, the Lord, and because Christians were considered a sect in Judaism, they had been granted immunity from such requirements and could actually abstain from pagan worship. But things began to change toward the end of the first century. First, Domitian became emperor of the Roman Empire. Domitian ruled from 81 AD to about 96 AD. Second, toward the latter half of Domitian's reign, he became so puffed up with pride, so full of himself, so arrogant, that he actually began to, to uh, command, insist, that people address him as our Lord and our God. And lastly, it became clear to most of the people that the church was not the same thing as the synagogue. That 
Christianity was not the same thing as Judaism and that Christians were not the same thing as Jews. And as a result, like other conquered peoples, all of a sudden, Christians were required to participate in emperor worship. They were required to declare before Domitian, you are our Lord and God. And if they refused to participate in emperor worship, they exposed themselves to the charge not only of being unpatriotic, but of being subversive and enemies of the state. Of course, that's exactly what happened. The Christian confession from the earliest days has always been that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. There is no other. And the result was that at various times and in various places, believers began to be persecuted because of their faith. You've no doubt heard the stories. So, early Christians, man, they they longed for the, the return of Christ. They longed for this day when Jesus would come back and he would judge the living and the dead. They longed for the day when Jesus would return and he would make all things new. Now, we don't live in first century Palestine. In fact, we don't live in 21st century Palestine. Um, <laughs> believers in the 21st century, in 21st century America aren't a persecuted people. In fact, most of us live pretty comfortable lives. But if you scratch below the surface of our lives... Like Christians from 2,000 years ago, you'll discover that we too know that the world is not the way it was meant to be. Just this past week, we had two children from our church admitted to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital. Now, both children are okay, but, but that was a sobering wake-up call. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. If you think about Mitchell's pastoral prayer this morning, you realize that, man, we have people in our body today, people who are here this morning who are struggling, um, some with very serious illnesses, life-threatening illnesses. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. Last Thursday... A member of our body lost her grandfather. Disney tells us that death is just part of the circle of life, but what the Bible tells us it death is that death is evidence that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And if we're really honest, if we're really honest, we know that we are not the way that we are supposed to be. Selfishness. Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, shame, guilt. With the Apostle Paul, we can all say we do not do the good we want to do, but the evil we do not want is what we keep doing. Can you not say that? And the question that we have to ask is not unlike the question that Christians in the first century had to ask. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for the world? 
Is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for you? Beloved, this is the reason why God reveals to John this vision of his heavenly throne room. Verse one, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first, uh, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Beloved, this isn't something that John just made up. It's not something that John just imagined. It's something that God himself revealed to John. Why? To give hope and a sense of confidence to people like John, to people like John's first readers and to people like us who are sinful and fallen and who live in a sinful and fallen world. Now, one thing I need to say before we look at what God showed John is something I alluded to last week. The book of Revelation is not a puzzle book full of hidden clues so that we can sort of make sense out of the world in the sense of recognizing who is the Antichrist and when is Jesus coming back specifically. The book of Revelation is is a picture book and it's given to us to comfort us and to encourage us and to enable us, to help us to persevere to the end because life is not the way it's supposed to be. When I say that the book of Revelation is a picture book, I don't mean that it's like a photo album. It's more like an impressionistic painting. If you've ever looked at or studied Monet, from afar, looking at his picture of the water lilies, you clearly see water lilies. From afar, if you look at his picture, a woman with a parasol, you clearly see a woman with a parasol. But when examined up close, there is not the same kind of precise detail that you might find in a high-resolution digital image. The brush strokes, the impressionists used, give impressions, not details. Now, I say this because what we see in Revelation is more like a painting from Monet than a photograph from Ansel Adams. As Bruce Metzger, the noted New Testament scholar from Princeton Seminary, points out in his commentary on Revelation. Up to chapter four in Revelation, the symbols have been relatively straightforward and their meaning relatively easy to understand. But from here onward, they become more difficult and complex. Nevertheless, by using a disciplined imagination, one can follow the author's meaning at least to some degree. So here's the question. What does John want us to see? And more importantly, what does God want us to see in this passage? Well, the first thing should be pretty obvious because it was repeated 17 times in our passage. John wants us to see the throne And more particularly, he wants us to see the one who is seated on the throne. Verse two, at once I was in the spirit and behold, 
a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Who is that one? It's, it's interesting that in verse three, when, when John describes the one who is seated on the throne, he doesn't describe the one who is seated on the throne, does he? What does he do? He says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Why doesn't John describe the one who is seated on the throne? It's because by not describing the one who is seated on the throne, John is telling us in no uncertain terms exactly who is sitting on the throne. It is Yahweh. It is the Lord God Almighty. Unlike the gods of the neighboring nations, the Lord is too glorious to describe. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is beyond words. He is beyond imagination. What's the significance of Jasper in Carnelian? Well, again, think Impressionism. Maybe they represent God's holiness and glory. Maybe they represent his wrath against all forms of sin and evil. Maybe they represent his brilliance and majesty, but unquestionably, they point to his splendor, his magnificence, his beauty. The rainbow that surrounds the throne, it's tied to Genesis chapter nine, the story of Noah, and particularly to the promise that God made to Noah after the flood, that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. The rainbow surrounding the throne signifies that the God who sits on the throne is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of faithfulness. Next are the 24 thrones and the 24 elders seated on thrones encircling the throne of God, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Scholars suggest that perhaps these 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, meaning that they represent all of God's redeemed people throughout history in the old covenant and the new covenant. And perhaps their white clothing represents the righteous robes of Christ that clothe his people and the crowns of gold. Perhaps they signify the redeemed humanity who is the very image of God. What's clear is that like everything else in the heavenly throne room, they are gathered around the throne of God. God is at the center of their universe. The flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder clearly harken back to God's awesome presence and overwhelming power on Mount Sinai. The seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spears of God, is perhaps an allusion to a vision seen by the prophet Zephaniah, where he sees seven lamps in the temple of God that are associated with the fullness of life and joy that there is in the Holy Spirit. Then there's this sea of glass-like crystal. Some scholars suggest that because the sea in the Bible is a symbol of evil and chaos, perhaps the fact that it is calm means that God has decisively defeated evil and chaos. And then there are these four living creatures covered with eyes and having the appearance of, a, of an ox and a lion and a man and an eagle in flight. 
there are all kinds of interpretations, all kinds of explanations of what these creatures are, but nobody really knows. But the one thing we do know is that they are awesome. And, 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 and they stand there to emphasize the awesomeness, the wonder of the throne of God. Whatever the details of this vision mean, this vision is clearly intended to make an impression. It's meant to overwhelm our senses. The brilliant colors, the loud cracks of thunder, the flashes of lightning, the scent of fire. It's meant to impress us with the splendor and majesty and glory of the heavenly throne room and particularly the splendor, majesty, and glory of the one who sits on the throne. But more than that, it's not just intended to make an impression. It's not just intended to capture our imagination. It's meant to capture our hearts. It's meant to draw us into worship. That's clear because of what we see next. What do the four living creatures what do the four living creatures do day and night? What do the 24 elders do? In a word, they worship. Beloved, this is a picture of what you and I were created for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what's going on in the throne room. Worship is a recalibrating of our hearts. It is a, is a reorienting of our hearts. Worship is why we gather together every Sunday. Worship is why you take up the Bible and read. Worship is why you pray. Worship is why God invites John into the throne room. And worship is why God invites us into the throne room. Worship is, is seeing and savoring and enjoying God for who he is. It's being satisfied in him. And worship changes everything. It changes how you live your life. It changes how you experience life. If you worship your career, or if you worship the idea of being married, or if you worship the possibility of having children, or if you worship other people's opinions, if you lose your job, or if you are single and you don't see any hope that you're getting married soon, if you struggle with infertility, if you discover that people are talking about you behind your back, it is crushing. But if the Lord owns your heart, it's not that those things don't hurt because they do. But not having them doesn't crush you. Because you are, because your heart is enraptured and satisfied by the one who is enraptured with you. This is one of the reasons why John invite, or this is one of the reasons why God invites John and he invites us into his throne room. But this is not the only reason. Think about the 24 elders falling down before the Lord and casting down their crowns. Think about what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, were, you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Did you hear what they said? Worthy are you, 
our Lord and God. The words that Domitian demanded from his subjects. What does this teach us? Beloved, who rules and reigns over all creation? Who deserves our ultimate allegiance? Who is worthy of our praise? Who is worthy to be called our Lord and God? It's not the emperor Domitian. It's not presidents or kings. It's not governing authorities or armies. It's not the kingdoms of this world. It's not the rich and famous. It's not the popular and pretty. It's not the skinny and youthful. It's not the beautiful and successful. It is the Lord God Almighty. He sits on the throne that sits at the center of heaven. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has absolute power. And you can say, well, in one sense, this is incredibly comforting. Because God is ruling over the details of my life. God is ruling over the heavens and the earth. That's comforting. But it's also deeply troubling. Now, why do I say that? Well, have you read the news lately? Have you watched the, the evening news lately? What do you see? You see death and destruction and sickness and poverty and starvation and abuse and injustice all around you. And God is ruling and reigning over heaven and earth. And that raises a question, doesn't it? What kind of God is God? If God is good and if God is all powerful, why is the world the way that it is? How does John address our question? Well, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't minimize it. Instead, he focuses our attention on what is in the right hand of God. He focuses our attention on the scroll in the right hand of God. In chapter five, verse one, John sees God holding a scroll in his right hand. If you read through the book of Revelation, what you discover is that the scroll represents all history. And God holds all history in his right hand. Once again, once again, emphasizing that from creation to consummation, God has a plan. What John wants you to realize is that what God holds in his right hand is something that he has promised and that he has planned for from the earliest days of human existence. The promise we first learn about in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, they've rebelled against their creator, their king, their God, their sovereign, their friend. And there are devastating consequences. Everything is affected. Everything is impacted. All the heartbreaks and the hurts that we see in our world is a consequence of their rebellion. 
But in the midst of declaring the consequences for their rebellion, God makes a promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hmm. Centuries later, maybe millennia later, God appears to Abram, who he later renames Abraham. And God begins to unfold this plan, this promise that he once made to Adam and Eve. And he says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Once again, centuries later, God appears to the Israelites at Mount Sinai and he affirms his promise and he lays out his plan. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, fast forward to who knows how many centuries to the day of David. The Lord appears to David and he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Of course, like Adam and Eve, the Israelites fail to fulfill their calling. And like Adam and Eve, the Israelites are expelled from the kingdom. They are expelled from the promised land. They are sent into exile in Babylon. But God keeps coming back with his promise. God keeps coming back with his plan. The passage from Micah that the Galtonies read this morning is a reaffirmation of the promise of God. The fact is, the Old Testament is full to overflowing of affirmation after affirmation that the day of the Lord is coming, when the Lord will return, when he will judge the living and the dead, when he will make all things new. Now, what does this mean? It means that beloved God is committed to our good. And he is committed to the good of all of his creation. This is so important for us to know. But that's not all that John wants us to see. Because in that moment, he's staring at the scroll. He hears a voice and realizes that there is no one worthy to take the scroll, break its seals, and finally and faithfully execute God's good and perfect plan. What good is God's plan if it can't be fulfilled? That question, it leads John to tears. And then a voice speaks. One of the 24 elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John, having grown up Jewish, knows the promises of God. He knows the plan of God. He knows, like all Jews, that the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are names of God's promised Messiah, who God promised to send to usher in his kingdom. So John turns and he looks and what does he see? He sees a lamb who was slain. What did John expect to see? I'm guessing he expected to see a lion. He expected to see the king of beasts 
who is a symbol of both ultimate power and supreme royalty. But instead, he sees a lamb, a symbol of both gentle vulnerability and through its sacrifice, the ultimate weakness of death. Can imagine, John is confused. And yet the one who had announced that the lamb, had announced the lamb as the, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David says what? He says, he has conquered. Meaning not only is he worthy to open the scroll, but he is also able to bring the plan of God for all history to fulfillment. And what happens? The heavens explode in worship and praise. What does this mean? And more importantly, in light of all of the hurt and brokenness of our world, how does this help us to trust the Lord who sits on the throne, ruling and reigning over all creation? Well, look at how the, 20, uh, look at how the four creatures and the 24 elders react to God on the throne and what they declare about God and, and compare that with how the four creatures and the 24 elders react to the lamb and what they say about the lamb. In both cases, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before God and before the lamb. It's not terror, it's absolute delight. To God sitting on his throne, the four living creatures and the 24 elders cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. To the lamb standing before the throne, the four living creatures and 24 elders cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all the creatures cried out to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. What does that mean? Well, if you, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God said over and over, I will not share my glory with another. But here in the throne room of God, he shares his glory with the lamb. What does that mean? It means this. It means that God is the lamb. And it means that the lamb is God. It tells us what we confessed earlier this morning, that Jesus Christ, though he was himself God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the words of Edward Shalito, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to the throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Beloved, what this means is that God is not aloof. God is not removed. God is not unaffected. God doesn't just have a plan. But in Jesus Christ, God has entered in. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
He has ransomed us. He has purchased us by his blood. In Christ Jesus, he took on flesh. And not only did he live under the threat of death, but he actually experienced death. And not like death that you and I will experience. He experienced the wrath of God. Why? So that in the face of sin, in the face of struggle, in the face even of death, we might have hope and we might have comfort and we might have courage because what this tells us is that while the world is not the way it is supposed to be, the world is not always gonna be the way it is. He is coming in the clouds. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He is coming to make all things new and he guarantees it by his blood. Beloved, God has graciously given us this vision of his heavenly throne room, the scroll and the lamb who was slain so that even though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Do you believe that? Beloved, this is not pie in the sky. This is guaranteed by what we celebrate at this table. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And he is coming again to make all things new. This is our confession. This is the confession that allows us to enter into the throne room, the call to worship today. Come to the throne and plead. You will find mercy and grace. Here's the question. Is this your confession? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have invited us into your presence. Thank you that somehow, outside of our ability to comprehend, our prayers this morning are part of the heavenly worship. Thank you that you have seated us in Christ in heaven. Thank you that you are coming again to make all things new. Lord, we believe, help us overcome our unbelief. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.